shall we pray? How shall we pray? Is prayer a significant aspect of our life as believers? Should it be? Absolutely. Prayer has been likened to breathing. How much effort do we put into breathing? You don't even think about it. You just breathe. Prayer should be like that. We're going to begin a little series, a kind of a mini-series this morning on prayer. So we're going, to, we're going to just kind of have our introduction this morning, and then in the next few weeks we're going to look at uh, Jesus' model prayer that he gives his disciples, the Our Father, and we're going to parse that prayer and uh, hopefully draw some reality, some truth out of that so we can better know how to pray. Something that always occurs to people, and people wonder about this, is how does prayer work? You ever wondered about that? How does prayer work? Now notice how I phrase that question. How does it work? Is there anything peculiar about that? How many know what what pragmatism is? Pragmatism, very simply, is a focus on not necessarily truth and principles, but just something that works. Have you ever said that? Just, Just give me something that works. When someone wants to instruct you and give you wisdom and understanding upon which you can base your life so that your, your life then will flourish, most people don't, they're impatient. They just, just give me some short and dirty thing, quick and dirty thing, just give me something that works. That's pragmatism. And very often we'll apply that, that pragmatic perspective to our spiritual life. Is that me? You hear me popping and... Is that my battery, do you think, uh, Doug? It's something. A bit, a bit, a bit. I don't know what that, I don't know. This, this electronic stuff, you know, what do I know? It's like computers to me. Probably need to replace my battery. Uh, I always need to replace the battery. All right. Did that fix it? Sounds like it, huh? All right. All right, good. So we can apply that same pragmatism to our Christian life. Just give me something that works. How does prayer work? When I think a better question, and it's different, but it's subtly different, is I think to ask ourselves, how does prayer function within the context of the infinite mind and plan of God? Where, where, does, where is prayer? How does, it, how does it fit in to God's prayer, to God's mind and his plan? Now, given that, there's two very simple views of prayer. Two very simple views. One... How many believe that God is absolutely sovereign over everything? Absolutely sovereign. Rules everything, ordains everything. Nothing nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his plan, his purpose. That's an extreme view for some. And they just believe that he just just governs and and, uh, uh, dictates everything. And so from that perspective, the question would be, do our prayers really just allow us to tune in to what God has already planned and purposed to do? Do our prayers simply let us know what his will is, what he's already determined to do, regardless of how or even if I pray or don't pray? In other words, does it do any good to pray if God's already determined what he's going to do? That's one view. A second view would be at the opposite end of the extreme. Do our prayers actually 
affect God's will? Can our prayers move God to do what he otherwise maybe would not do? See, there's a mystery to prayer. And we're always trying to figure it out. Are God's actions pertaining to us determined largely on our prayers or not? Are you with me? Are you tracking with me here? Now, I actually believe that the Bible gives us support for both perspectives. And you have to kind of hold them in tension. On the one hand, the Bible does teach God's absolute sovereignty, that he rules and that his will will be done and his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. The Bible clearly teaches that. We know that. But also, on the other hand, within his sovereignty... God wants us to come to him with our requests, our requests for wisdom, our requests for uh, guidance, mercy, strength, courage, provision, and countless other needs. So you, the two, the both are, are true. You can't reconcile them. You have to hold them in tension. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul writes this, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. In fact, he says over 1 Thessalonians, pray continuously. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that we can come with confidence to the throne of grace and we can obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. So you see these continual uh, rejoinders to come and to ask and to, and, to, and to seek. And yet at the same time, we have the Bible giving us a picture of an absolute sovereign God who rules and reigns over everything, governs everything. I don't believe, however, though those two are true, I don't believe that it's possible for us to fully understand how to reconcile those things. That's where people get into trouble. When you reach... Uh, a point where you, you get frustrated about holding something in tension, you try to resolve it because you need to resolve it and just, it's an irresolvable ten tension, that's when you get in trouble. And that's where, that's where different beliefs and cults and those things kind of come off because they have a tendency to lean in one direction or another. So I don't believe, with all the mystery to prayer, I don't believe that it's actually possible for us to fully understand God's working and how he makes prayer effective. But he does. What I do know is that he simply commands us to pray. He simply commands us to pray. And he gives us principles to govern our prayers. And on a present passage this morning, we're going to learn some of those principles. And then in the ensuing weeks, as we continue to study through that model prayer, the Our Father, we're going to learn more principles that he has for us. So look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. We're just going to read those verses, and then we're going to parse them. He says, but when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, we've, as we've been studying through this section in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen how Jesus has exposed the faulty teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the faulty rabbinic teaching that's been self-centered, it's been partial, uh, redefined, uh, externalistic only. And so he's pointed this out. He says to his disciples, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He goes through that paradigm six times on six different subjects. So he's pointing out the faulty teaching of the Pharisees. Now he turns to the faulty practice 
of the, of the religious leaders. And in so doing, he identifies three areas of religious practice. And these are classic areas. And, and these three areas were, uh, were a signal identification for, for you if you were to be considered a good religious person. You were a person who gave to the needy, you prayed, and you fasted. That's why he picks those out. Every rabbi, every Pharisee, every teacher of the law focused on those three areas as the signal picture of their, of their faith, if you will, their relationship with God. And Jesus is going to point out how all of these areas, as they practiced them, were faulty. They didn't meet the test. Just like their teaching was faulty, now their practice is faulty. Are you with me? Last time, he exposed their hypocritical giving. And we're going to look this morning at their hypocritical praying. Now, their prayers were faulty in two ways. First, they were faulty in their intended audience. Who should be the audience of our prayers? God should be the audience. But you'll see as we'll look through this passage, as we parse this passage, we'll see that their audience was not God, but rather was who? It was other people. The second way in which their prayers were faulty was in the content of their prayers. Their content was faulty. The Jews were called God's chosen people. Most of us are aware of that. God chose them. He brought them into existence. He said, you're going to be my special people. And he had his reasons for doing that. He spoke to them. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Jacob. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to many, many others. And they had spoken directly to him. There was conversation between God and these people. The Jews were the recipients of God's word. No other people had ever been so favored by God as had such and had such direct communication with him as the Jews. Of all people, now think about that, with that context, of all people, they should have known how to pray. Would you think so? They should have known how to pray, but they didn't. Like every other aspect of their religious lives, their praying had been corrupted, their praying had been perverted by rabbinic tradition. And we've talked about that over the past weeks, how the rabbis had, been, had absorbed pagan practices, how they'd been influenced by pagan religions, and how their teaching and their leadership and their theology had become corrupted and perverted. And this has been passed down generation after generation uh, to the people. Most Jews, by Jesus' time, were completely at a loss as how to pray as God wanted. Most Jews today are completely at a loss about how to pray as God wants. Many Christians don't know how to pray as God wants. That's why we're in this little series. Over the years, a number of faults had crept into their practices. And I just want to highlight some of those faults. Then we'll get to the core, the central fault. Many of their praying and their prayers had, had degenerated to just empty rituals. The words and the forms were set. They were simply read or rehearsed by memory. They meant nothing. It was just a rote memory exercise. You could recite your prayers really without thinking. We understand that, don't we? Many of us come sometimes to church and, and we're distracted by so much stuff and the words on the screen for our, our songs, which really should be prayerfully sung, we just kind of mindlessly voice them. I know I do. I've heard them hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times. I hear them four times every weekend. <laughs> it's easy for me to go, oh, praise the Lord, you know. I have to be very deliberate in making sure that I don't succumb to just going through rote recitation or rote singing. Am I, am I making sense? 
So we can do a lot of that without much attention being paid to what's being said or what's being sung. Praying had degenerated to simply to a routine religious exercise. Think about that. You have to look into your own life. What is it in my life that, that has really, truly degenerated into just simply a routine religious exercise? All of us have to deal with this. All of us have to confront these things in our own lives. There were two formalized prayers, two prayers the Jews were especially fond of repeating, and they were to repeat them every day. Every Jew knew these prayers, no matter where they were, no matter what they were doing. It didn't matter if you were at home. It didn't matter if you were at work. It didn't matter if you were on a journey in the synagogue or visiting with friends. If you were a devout Jew, you stopped whatever you're doing, wherever you were, and you offered these appropriate prayers. Morning, afternoon, and evening. 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. These were the traditional times, if you were a devout Jew, to pray. The two most common formalized prayers were first the Shema. And this is a compilation of three different passages acknowledging God and his sovereignty and so forth. I've given you three passages. You can look them up on your own and read them. But very often the Jews, would, what they would do was they would shorten the Shema to just one sentence, one line. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. And that was it. Now you can imagine, you're, you're, you're required to do this three times a day minimum, wherever you were. So if you're on a journey, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, you stopped. Hear, O Israel, Lord your God, he is one. Do you think that that could become a rote exercise? The other prayer is called the Shimona Esrei. Now, that was a compilation of 18 separate prayers. And those 18 separate prayers covered 18 different areas of life. Now, you can imagine, if you're in a hurry to get someplace, it's 9 o'clock, it's noon, it's 3 o'clock, you're on a journey. You've got to stop, you've got to pray, pray your obligatory prayers. You can pray the first one pretty quickly, but now you've got to go through 18 separate prayers. Would you be tempted to contract those into one, maybe one line? Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. So you can see how the, the prayer life began to contract and be just a ritualized religious exercise without any real meaning at all. Now, we can pray with one of three basic attitudes. We can pray with sincerity. We can pray indifferently. We can pray proudly. Now, when we pray, when we sing, when we acknowledge God, we would, we would like to think that we do it with great sincerity. Would you? God. God, I really love you. I just, I, just, I just want to praise you. I want to thank you. And, and there can be genuine sincerity. Just like in any kind of relationship. If you have a relationship with a significant other person, do you want the conversation and that relationship to be sincere or insincere? Yeah, my wife wants me to sincerely engage her. That's why she takes my answers. Look at me when I'm talking to you. <laughs> Oh, yes, okay. Yes, dear. You can pray sincerely. That's really the goal and the object. Or you can pray indifferently. Perfunctorily. I'm going to, oh, okay, I'll pray, I'll pray. And I've seen this. I've heard people say, I'll say, uh, would, you, would you lead us in prayer? Okay. <laughs> and there's some perfunctory prayer prayed. And I'm thinking to myself, where are you? Where's the sincerity? Where's the genuineness? The third attitude, praying with pride, and I'm not talking about pride from a positive perspective. This is what Jesus is condemning these people for doing. They prayed in a way 
to make sure that they enunciated every word, every syllable. They took their time. They elongated. You've heard, God. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Jesus loves you. This we know. There's something wrong there. Jesus is saying to these, his disciples, don't be, don't be praying like the Pharisees because they are simply parading their piosity. They're on parade. Most of them limited their prayers to the prescribed times, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., with no relation to genuine need or genuine desire. It was just a rote exercise. But that formality, while we're, we're, we can be tempted to say, oh, oh and, and eschew any kind of formality, but that formality didn't necessarily prevent true prayer from being offered. Daniel is a great example. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, remember Daniel's life is threatened. And so he goes into his room. He goes upstairs into his room. He opens the doors. And he prays three times. What three times do you think he prayed? 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. He understood. He knew the prescribed time for prayer. The morning prayer, the afternoon prayer, and the evening prayer. So we can... can enjoy those those formalized seasons but and they don't necessarily discount our prayer it's all what goes on where in our heart and our mind absolutely another problem with their prayers was the fact that they esteemed long prayers they believed that the a prayer's sanctity and a prayer's effectiveness was in direct proportion to its length The ancient rabbis held that the longer the prayer, the more likely it would be to be heard by God and to be heeded by God. So they would pray long prayers. Long prayers. Really long prayers. (laughs) Why? Because they believe that this long prayer, they're going to get God's attention somewhere along the line here. Part of what has influenced them is, is, the, is the, uh, the, the pagan beliefs. You see, the pagan gods, it was believed, because there is no such thing, but the pagan gods were believed to be absolutely apathetic towards the people, to all the pagans. And so the pagans would have to extol their gods. They'd have to uh, call on their gods. Uh, you have a great example of this in 1 Kings chapter 18, when uh, Elijah is encountering the prophets of Baal. Some of you remember that passage? And Elijah tells them, okay, you go ahead, you have first shot at it. Call on Baal, see what he'll do. And so the account says, you know, they called throughout the entire day and into the evening, they're calling on Baal. Oh, Baal, come help us. Oh, Baal, where are you? Oh, Baal. And they're cutting themselves and doing all sorts of machinations. Baal never shows up. And so finally, when they're absolutely exhausted, then Elijah takes over and you know the rest of the account. The point being is that these, these prayers were long because they had no absolute confidence whatsoever that their gods heard them or even cared. So they had to cajole their gods. They had to cry out to their gods. They had to wake their gods up. Maybe their gods were in the bathroom. <laughs> I'm serious. Aren't you glad that you have confidence to know that God cares about you and that he hears you and he has your best interests at heart? You don't have to cajole him. You don't have to badger him. He knows. He knows. But the rabbis and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, nonetheless, We're committed to long, long prayers. But a long prayer also is not necessarily an insincere prayer. You see these prayers in the Bible. Public prayer 
can certainly lend itself uh, to praying for appearances sake to impress other people with our religiosity. But a long prayer doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad prayer because we have records of long prayers in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus singles out another fault. He singles out the use of meaningless repetitions patterned after the pagan religions. Again, I call your attention to the passage in 1 Kings with respect to the prophets of Baal. Hour after hour, they repeated that same phrase, O Baal, answer us, and they never got an answer. But the worst fault, the very worst fault was wanting to be seen and heard by other people. This was the major fault that Jesus points out in this passage. He zeroes in on because it, it came both from pride and it was intended to satisfy pride. How many know pride is our biggest battle? It's our biggest battle. It's with us all the time, isn't it? The minute you think you're humble, guess what? You just lost humility. Look how humble I am. Shut up. <laughs> Prayer that focuses its attention on self. Prayer that focuses attention on self is always hypocritical. Because the focus of every prayer should be on who? Should be on God. I want to suggest to you that most of our prayers are self-centered. It's all about us. Well, not my prayers. Sure. Listen to your prayers sometimes. Have you ever told God what to do and how to do it? Have you ever said, in effect, have you taken note of what's going on down here? Do you know what's going on in my life? Do you know my trials, my struggles, my difficulties? Why don't you help me? Now, I know most of you never pray that way. <laughs> but most of our prayers, quite frankly, are self-centered. They're not centered on God. What's a God-centered prayer? God, thank you. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you know my life. Thank you that you know what I need. Thank you that you are at work in my life, even now, though I may not feel it. Thank you that you're at work in me and you're changing me, making me more like yourself. Thank you. Thank you that you know I have this cancer. And thank you, Lord, that you know what your will is according to my, for my life. It's okay to say, God, have mercy on me. But at the same time, say, God, thank you for your mercy to me. See, more of our prayers need to be focused on him rather than simply on ourselves. We, pray, we must learn to pray from faith, not from unbelief. And most of our prayers, I submit to you, find their genesis in unbelief. It's like, does God not know? Of course he knows. Is he just kind of sitting up there, tapping his toe, waiting for us to, to, to do something or to say something before he's going to act? No, he's always acting. He's always working. His, his purpose for our life is good, pleasing, and perfect, the Bible tells us. God, thank you. Thank you that's your purpose for my life. Thank you that I am considered a sheep for the slaughter. Thank you, Lord, that you, you, I gave myself to you. I belong to you. For whatever your will is, God, use me. Whoa. Do we, most of us pray that way? Eh. Most of us are going, we're praying what? Survival prayers. <laughs> Not service prayers. God, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. Whatever circumstance I find myself, I want you to be glorified. I'm going to quit my whining, my crying. I'm going to quit just being so darn self-absorbed. I'm going to honor you. It's not about me. It's about you. I would submit to you that's the kind of prayer we should be praying. A prayer that's focused on him, not on ourselves. 
The hypocritical Pharisees and teachers of the law, Jesus says, prayed for the same reason they did everything else, simply to attract attention to themselves. One commentator said this, the greatest danger, he said, to religion is that the old self simply becomes religious. There are lots and lots of people today sitting in churches this morning who are not born again. They are religious. They have done nothing more than put on religious clothes. They've learned the lingo. They can do the fasting. They can jump through the hoops. But they're not born again. They're not changed. And their focus is still on themselves. You have to look in your own life. If the focus is still on yourself... It may be an indication you aren't saved. Because God takes us when we're walking this way and he turns us. Where we had a bent toward ourselves, now we have a bent towards him. Our orientation is towards him, the Bible tells us. And if you have not that orientation, it's not just lip service, it's actually a life. People still today deceive themselves into thinking they're Christians when all they've done is dress up that old self in religious clothes. They're just being religious. The hypocrites loved, notice the word he uses, the hypocrites loved to stand and pray. Now standing is not a bad posture. Standing, in fact, was the the common prayer posture in those days as well as lying down and kneeling. But they love to stand and pray where? In the synagogues and on the street corners. Now, those were normal places to pray. You say a street corner was a normal place to pray? Yeah. Remember, if you were a devout Jew, uh, you stopped wherever you were, whatever you were doing. If you happened to be on a street corner and it was the, the, uh, the, the, the time of prayer, you would stop and you would pray. So it wasn't such an odd thing for them to do that. The problem was, the real evil was that those hypocrites, there was their desire to display themselves to be seen by men. Can you imagine? They're hustling. It's 9 o'clock. I better get to my street corner. (laughs) That's the mentality. They would want the, the premier place in the synagogue. So all can you imagine all the hypocrites jostling to get to the premier place in the synagogue or to get to the the premier street corner because that's where the crowds were that's where the people were that's where they could get the greatest amount of exposure so people could look at them and say "Ooh, aren't they spiritual aren't they holy no they weren't they weren't now jesus isn't teaching by the way against all public prayer because some people will read these words of Jesus and they'll think, oh, oh I, I, we, we're not supposed to pray out loud. Yes, you can. Jesus prayed out loud. It's what's in the heart. It's what's in the mind. It's the attitude and the motivation. Why am I praying out loud? Is it to get attention? Is it for people to look at, look at me and see how spiritual I am? But those public prayers of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were simply self-centered as well as mechanical, as well as ritualistic, long and repetitious. (laughs) Do you remember the parable Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple? Classic of the Pharisee. This is how he just identifies it. The Pharisee stands in the temple... And he says, he says, Luke says, and he prayed to himself. Now that little preposition could also be translated, he prayed about himself. But it doesn't say he prayed to God. He prayed to himself or about himself, and he said, God, I thank you. Really, he's thanking himself that he's what? He's not like this tax collector. He's not like all other men. And he goes down this litany of things and then he gives all of his credits. How prone we're to do that as fallen, fallible human beings. 
He says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray that way. And what was the reward for their prayers? What was the reward to the hypocrites for their prayers? What does Jesus say? What was their reward? What were they looking for? Yeah, they're looking for the praise and admiration of all the other hypocrites. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine, as I said a moment, racing to get to the, to the, to the most crowded street corner? And the other, the other hypocrites are racing. Oh, I better get there before John gets there. <laughs> He's always beats me. <laughs> Is that like us? We want the best position, the best place, the most recognition, most acknowledgement. I want to be acknowledged. No reward from God. Their reward, they've got it. That's it. You got the recognition. You got the admiration. You got the praise of all the other hypocrites. That's it. You got it. No more. No reward from God. God does not reward men-pleasers. That's right. He does not reward men-pleasers. Define prayer for me. What would be a simple, simple definition of prayer? If someone were to ask you to define prayer, give me a definition of prayer. What would you say? I love it. When I ask the question, Communion with God. It's simply communion with God. And you see, if God is not involved, then it's only what the pretense of prayer is communion with God. It's not like the Pharisee praying to himself, praying to God. By the way, whose idea do you think prayer is? Man's or? It's God's idea. You read your Bible and you see at every juncture, at every turn, at every place, God always takes the initiative. He took the initiative in creation. Did he need us? No, he wanted kids, so he made us. No parent needs kids, right? <laughs> but somehow you get this idea, I want them. And then when you got them, you go, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> No, he, he takes initiative at every point for us. He loved us first. When we walked away and, and disavowed him, he reached out and saved us. He sent his son to die for us. He always takes initiative. In prayer, he speaks first. Let me say that. In prayer, he speaks first. We listen. And then we respond. Notice in verses 5 and 6 of our passage, Jesus says, when you pray. When you pray. Now, when were the Jews accustomed to praying? What were the traditionals of prayer? 9, 12, and 3, right? Morning, afternoon, evening prayers. Every Jew knew that. But Jesus seems to imply a greater latitude to prayer. He's like, he says, when you pray or whenever you pray. He tells us, when you pray, go into your room. The idea is that of going to the most private place. He's making as great a contrast here, I think, as possible to the practice of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're all over the map. He says, when you pray, don't be like them. Don't go stand in the street corners. Don't go stand up in the, in the synagogue. When you pray, go into your room. The most private place possible. Somewhere where you're not tempted to show off. Somewhere where it's simply your, 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 your own personal heart and attitude and motive can be much clearer. Close the door. Go into your room, close the door. Do whatever you have to to get your attention off of yourself and off of other people and on to God and God alone. Much of our prayer life should literally be in secret. Think about this. 
True prayer is always intimate. True prayer is always intimate. When you're going to have a conversation with somebody who's really important to you, and it's a really important conversation, do you want everybody else listening in? No, if you and your spouse have to talk, and it's a serious conversation, you got kids, you, you put the kids away. You hide them, bury them, do something with them. <laughs> so you can have a very serious conversation. True? This is an intimate thing. Prayer is an intimate, intimate practice. Go into your room, close the door, remove all the distractions, focus, focus. The supreme attention is to be upon God. And then our Father, Jesus says, who sees what is done in secret, he will reward us. He will reward us. And the most important secret he sees is not the words we say in our private room. The most important secret he sees is the thoughts that we have in the privacy of our hearts. Because I can say things that don't necessarily reflect what's on, going on in here. When God is genuinely the audience of our prayers, Jesus says, he will reward us. And he's the only one that can give us a reward. He will bless each and every person who comes to him in sincerity. He's our audience. He is our audience, not other people. Now, if he is to be the audience, then that of necessity says to us, the next question is, what should be then the content of our prayers? The audience of the, of the hypocrites was who? Was it God? No, the audience of the hypocrites was all the other people. The content of their prayers was also hypocritical. And Jesus says, let not your content be like theirs. Our content should not be meaningless babbling. Literally, the word translated from the Greek means uh, idle, thoughtless chatter. And how many times we can find ourselves doing that. It is not honest, properly motivated repetition of needs and praise before God that's wrong. But the mindless, indifferent recital of spiritual sounding words over and over and over. I remember growing up, I grew up as a Roman Catholic and I was taught how to pray. Some of you come from that environment, you know what I'm talking about. I was taught the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the Apostles' Creed, and the African Tradition. And then I discovered a prayer on my own. Help! <laughs> my foxhole prayer. <laughs> when I was in trouble, I go, help! I promise I'll never do that again, just get me out of this. That's a very eloquent prayer. I would go to confession on Saturday as a dutiful Catholic. My mother would make me go to confession because she knew I was a bad boy. <laughs> She'd say, you better go to confession. <sighs> I'd march off to church. I'd go stand in the line with all the other sinners ready to confess. And I'd go in the confessional and say, bless me, Father, I've sinned. It's been a week since my last confession. You know the formula. Some of you do. So I'd rehearse my sins. And I want to hedge. And he knew I was hedging. And he said, have you lusted this week? Mm. <laughs> and he just asked me those questions you don't want to be asked by anybody. And he can't lie in the confessional. <laughs> so I said, yes. How many times? Oh, <laughs> And he said, okay, now go, go say 15 rosaries for your penance. 
Now, and again, you have to have grown up in this environment to appreciate this. You leave the confession, you've you got to pray 15 rosaries. I never understood, by the way, prayer is penance. I never made that connection. But anyway, I'd go, and you have to go up to the altar, kneel at the altar rail in those days, when I grew up, and everybody else who's still standing in line, ready to make their confession, they got nothing to do but look at you. <laughs> and you know they're looking at you because you were looking at other people. <laughs> and anybody that lingered any length of time, you go, oh my, they must have really been bad. <laughs> there, they got to really play a long penance, whoa. And you would be up there going, I know everybody's looking at me. You could feel them bearing down through your back. <laughs> and you're praying your long prayers. Oh, man. So to remedy that, I figured out a way to say the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the glory be faster than anybody. Our Father. <laughs> Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord. Bless our I could get through a rosary in no time at all. I get through 15 rosaries in no time at all. And I would get up and people, whoa, he was all right. <laughs> it became mindless babbling. Simply repetitious chatting. It was no sincerity. There was no real genuineness there. I was going through the motions. That's what prayer was. Until I became a Christian. And I began to read this book. And I began to read the prayers in that book. Oh my. That's what prayer is. God changed my life. You see, not only must our hearts be right before God will hear our prayers, but also our minds must be right. There is a connection between what we think and what we say and where our hearts are. As a man thinks... So is he. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My mind and my heart have to be in sync. I can't pray mindless prayers and expect a God to look at those and hear those as sincere prayers. Thoughtless prayer is as offensive to God as heartless prayer. They simply go together. You can't separate them. Now, does God need to be badgered or cajoled to get our, for us to get his attention? Do we have to storm the gates of heaven? <laughs> I hear that all the time. I'm a prayer warrior and I storm the gates of heaven. I just don't do that. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't need to storm the gates of heaven. You don't need to wear this badge, I'm a prayer warrior. That's nothing more than spiritual pride. That's just, that's very simple. God does not have to be, he's not asleep. He's not in the bathroom. He's not on a journey. He's not got, what's that? The Alzheimer's. He's not clueless. He hasn't forgotten you. You don't say, wait, do you hear me up there? You don't have to do any of that stuff. He's not like the pagan gods who are apathetic. He loves us. He knows us intimately. He loves us so much he died for us. He doesn't have to be cajoled. He doesn't have to be badgered. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need even before we ask. Well, that would seem to beg the question then. Well, if he already knows what I need before I ask, Charlie, why even ask? I've heard that. Very few people will say it because it doesn't, it's not spiritual to say it, but we think it. If he already knows what I need, why even ask? Why even pray? What's the point of it? That's where we started. Why ask? 
This is important now. Think before you answer. Why ask? He wants us to ask. Why does he want me to ask? He wants me to realize I need him. How many parents do we have here? Parents, do you love it when your kids just take you for granted and presume on you? You do love it? You like that? Yeah, just have your way, do whatever you want. Just assume that I'm going to provide everything. Don't ask. No. I mean, if your kids are grown up and they're out of the house and they come home, I expect them to come and I expect them not to go to the refrigerator and just open it up as if they lived there. Yeah. Yeah. I expect them to come and I expect them to come home and say, uh, Dad, uh, do you have any beer in the refrigerator? No, joke. I'm going to hear about that one. <laughs> no, he knows that we need to be aware that we need him and we need to ask. We need to acknowledge him. Acknowledge our dependency on him. Express our need for him. God, I need you in my life. I know that. I know I can do nothing without you. I'm at a loss left to myself. I'm going to mess things up again. That's why Proverbs says what? Acknowledge him in most of your ways. All of your ways. Because if you're not acknowledging him in all of your ways, what are you going to do? You're going to lean on your own understanding. And you're, going to, you're just going to just mess it up again. God, I need you. I need you. I need your grace. I need your wisdom. I need your strength. I need your provision. I need every good gift from you. Thank you. Thank you that you already know this. But thank you also. I need to acknowledge that. Church, to pray rightly is to pray with a devoted heart and right motives. To pray rightly is to pray with single attention to God rather than to anybody else or ourself. That's going to be the biggest battle when you pray that the attention is not on you. The attention is always on Him. Learn to acknowledge Him. Learn to thank Him. Learn to praise Him. Learn to acknowledge Him. He already knows what you need. And you can voice those needs. But it's got to be the attention on Him. Not on yourself, not on other people. And to pray rightly is to pray with sincere confidence. Sincere confidence that our Heavenly Father both hears us and answers every single request made to Him in faith. He answers every single request made to Him in faith. He always rewards our sincere devotion with gracious response. Always, always, always. And if our request is sincere, but it's not according to his will, what then? He will answer in a way better than we want or better than we can express. Paul sums it up this way in Ephesians. He says, our God is able to do immeasurably more all than we ask or imagine. Even if you're praying and you're, and you're saying, God, whatever, what, I just need this, I need this, but if this is not in your will, I know your will is better than mine. Your will be done. I trust you. I trust you. Amen, church? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for this gift of prayer. Thank you for this phenomenal ability to commune with you. Lord, teach us how to listen to you through your word and how to respond. Thank you again for these lessons and what it means to trust you. Thank you for the confidence to know that you know everything we need even before we ask. Thank you that you are working in our life. Thank you that your purposes are good, pleasing, and perfect for us. Lord, we can go on and on and on. 
with all that we know that you've revealed to us. Thank you. We love you this morning, Lord. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are not apathetic towards us. Thank you that we don't have to bang on your gates. But you're with us every single moment of every single day. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment or two. I just want you to reflect on some things. We sang a song earlier in the morning. More power, more love, more of you in my life. Some of you recall that. And for many of us, there is a, there's an earnest need and hunger for more of his power. Maybe there's something in your life that's, that's got a grip on you and you in and of yourself are powerless over it. Maybe there's not the kind of love in your heart to express to those around you that you would like and you know that needs to be there. God, put more of your love in my heart. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you need to be saved today. Maybe you need to surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you're not bold in your faith and how you live it and how you express it. Maybe you're timid and fearful. You're afraid of people. Afraid to speak up. Ashamed of Jesus. Maybe there's some other area of your life wherein you know that you fall short and you need God. Now, while all of our heads are bowed and, and we're, we're all thinking, if anything occurs to you and those, just those things or, or some, of, some others occur to you and you say, yes, I, I, need, I need God, I need more of his power in my life. I'm powerless. I'm afraid, I'm timid, I need more of his love and so forth. Maybe you say, I need to be saved. Whatever it is, I'm going to ask you, while everybody else's heads are bowed, I'm going to ask you just to, because I want to pray with you. But I want to know if there's people who need to pray and want to pray. And if you fall into those kinds of environments and categories and you want to be prayed for, just lift your hand right now. Just lift your hand real high. Okay. You know your need. God, I need more of you in my life. Now, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. If you've raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to get out of your chair. Come right down here in the front. Stand right down here. Come now. Now. Go. Come quickly. Just get right in here. Crowd in here because there's some more people behind you. Just come right now. Some people are still coming. Just come on, Randy. Get it. Just crowd right in here. Right over here on the sides. Okay, here's just very simply. Here's what I want you to do. You've already identified that area of your life where you're needy. Now you want to say, Lord, show me that which is blocking your power, blocking your love causing me to be afraid and timid. Identify that. And then I want you to say to him, God, I repent of this stuff. I repent of being afraid and intimidated. And just ask him, make me bold, strengthen me, fill me with your love. Just do that little exercise right now, right where you're at. Just talk to him. And believe by faith that he is going to answer your prayer. He's going to meet that need. You confess, you confess your bitterness, your resentment, your unforgiveness. You confess that stuff. Get it out of your life. Repent of it. And you commit yourself to him afresh today. And ask him, ask him to meet that need. Then when you prayed that prayer, when you made that commitment, you tell him, thank you, God. Thank you. I receive this gift. I receive it from your gracious hand. Thank you for making me stronger. Thank you for making me bolder. Thank you for making me more loving. 
Amen? Amen. Amen. Now you're going to stay right here. You're going to stay right here. You guys, come on over here. Just come on on the sides. Okay? Let, let those guys squeeze through. Just squeeze in here. Come on. Lots of love. Get in. Get close to each other. We're the body of Christ. Come on now. All right. I want you guys now to lead the rest of us to the throne of God in praise. Follow Alan's lead, shall you? Lift your hands. Let's praise God. Thank you.